0: Good morning, everyone. Oh, it is so good. Oh, God bless you. It is so good to see you. And uh, we welcome you, those that are watching online, and those that are over in Brown Chapel. And um, we're going to get started today with the Lord's Prayer, as is our custom. Now, notes are available to you, of course, if you're here and then online as was explained. Uh, But if you don't have your notes yet, we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 8 and from Matthew chapter 15. Uh, Let's look to the Lord together as we pray, as Jesus taught us to pray. You can see the words on the screen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Father, as we move into the message today, we want to take opportunity to pray what we've been praying for the better part of five years now, Uh, moving in close to that. We ask you in regard to our nation for lies and liars to be exposed. We ask you for truth to rise up. We pray for the church, that the church would wake up And we pray for Americans that we will know what to do regardless of our persuasion or conviction or our thoughts. That's a good prayer to pray. And as we enter the uh, just a few hours before Election Day, we ask that your kingdom would come and we ask that your will would be done. Now, Lord, we're not, when we say your will be done, we're not just abandoning the process to you. We're not going to stay home and just say, well, whatever God wants to do, he can do. We are so privileged to be part of this process here. When the scripture tells us to honor the king and to pray for those in authority, boy, what a challenge because those folks didn't have any say in their government whatsoever but you've given us an opportunity to vote and to make a difference. So we ask you to help us when we vote, help us to remember who we are and whose we are. We pray that your kingdom will come. Your will would be done because you work in ways we don't always understand. And we commit it to you, but ask you to help us to know the wise thing to do and the right thing to do. Father, I want to thank you this morning, this person on my heart as I prayed. You've struggled with sickness for, for months and you've not even asked for prayer to speak of because you've thought, well, there's so much going on that um, my problem is minor compared to what's going on in the COVID virus but I want to say to you that today, for some reason, I don't understand the Lord's timing, but for some reason, the Lord speaks healing to your body, to that affliction, to that sickness that you've been willing to just set aside. And we're not trying to be mystical or, or like some showman, but Lord, we do ask that you'd bring us the confirmation of the healing power of the Lord for this lady today. I pray also for those, you are about to open a door in our church. Um, You're about to open a door for mothers. You are about to give an anointing of motherhood upon our ladies. And those that have wanted to be mothers are going to become mothers. Those that have thought it's too late to become mothers will find themselves like uh, the parents of John the Baptist. uh, A little out of season perhaps but ordained of God because you've made it clear those who love children you love and you'll help us. Father, I don't know if that, who that affects or who that might represent, but there's more than one and I ask your anointing upon them. And I pray for one other person on my heart today, daughter of Zion. The Lord says this, your song will not be lost forever. Your victory will not be set aside Your opportunity for fulfillment has not been pushed to the side, never to be seen again. The Lord will restore your song. The Lord will restore your praise. The Lord will bring healing and help. And the Lord will show you that he is mighty to save, mighty to deliver, mighty to to, uh, provide, and mighty to heal. Lord, I don't know all that's implied by that, but you are the God who keeps his promises And in six or seven months where we've been just forced to look at other stuff and to have our life dictated by things on the outside, you want us to know you've never forgotten. You've never forgotten what you promised. You've never forgotten what you planned. So Lord, we trust you. And we ask as we look at great faith today, help us to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Someone asked Mrs. uh, Albert Einstein if she understood her husband's theory of relativity. She thought a moment and kind of chuckled and said, Oh, no, of course not. Very few people understand his theory of relativity. Then she gave a great insight. She said, I don't understand the theory, but I understand Albert, and he can be trusted. That's a good definition of faith. Faith is not an abandoning to fatalism, but faith has its root in the idea of trust. Um, we Pentecostals, because we believe God is healer and because we believe that he has not ceased doing miracles, we're not cessationist in our theology, We don't have all the answers about healing, but we do know that one of the gifts of the Spirit is the gift of healing uh, operated under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. We do know that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and He still has power to heal. We don't doubt that at all. But if we're not careful, we will turn faith into a very carnal pursuit Where it becomes a positive mindset so that we can get whatever it is we want to have. And I know that that's not true of everyone that that pursues healing or, or help and jobs or whatever it is, but we have to be careful that we don't forget that trust is not a matter, or excuse me, faith is not a matter of mind over matter. Faith is not a matter of just saying the right things. At its very core, essential being, Mrs. Einstein understood more about faith than a lot of us do, and that is, at the heart of it, is trust. Trust is not defined by how much or how little doubt you have. Now, there are times that we're called upon to believe. There are times that our trust is in the abilities Lord, uh, the Lord's ability to do something. Uh, Peter looked at a crippled man in Acts chapter 3 and the scripture says he had insight that the man had faith to be healed. But at the end of the day, loved ones, even when we're talking about faith in Christ, the gospels don't revolve around a faith in Christ to heal, even though he certainly did that. The gospels revolve around a faith that shows trust being rooted and grounded in him. And we need to get back to the point where faith is about trust so that we're able to say with confidence, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's not fatalism. It's not somebody that's given up who says, we believe our God is able to deliver us from the fire and we believe that he will, but if he doesn't, You know, it's not kind of a, well, I hope so. And I know he can, but if he doesn't, it's okay. No, those things are not concessions of maybe he will, maybe he won't. Those kind of statements are statements of faith that say, whatever course he takes me down, I trust him because God is good and everything he does is good. Now, we know that... uh, There are times that are easy to read and times that are difficult to read. I go through scripture and there have been times that are absolutely dangerous times. When you are between the devil and the deep red sea, that's a dangerous time. When it looks like obliteration is the only option that you have unless God comes through, that's an obviously dangerous time. I think of the slaughter of the innocents. Everybody in Bethlehem, uh, the male children under two years of age were to be slaughtered uh, uh, because Herod did not want the possibility of the king of Israel to survive. And that was truly a dangerous time. Just ask the mothers who lived in that city. You think about the siege of Samaria. That was a dangerous time when the Assyrians had laid uh, such a barrage of attack on the people of Samaria that parents had begun to eat their children, absolutely unthinkable in our minds. Or you think about Revelation chapter 12, where the whole course of human history is described as everything that God does, the enemy is ready to devour it and to destroy it. Those are easily discernible, dangerous times. But not all dangerous times are obvious. Not all dangerous times are easily observed. One of the most deadly times in Old Testament history is the book of Judges, where it says twice, and you read it, it's to me, it's the most depressing book in the Bible. Because even though God did great and wonderful things, the people are just in a cycle. And the reason they're in a cycle of we're doing good, God blesses us, we sin, God judges us, we suffer, then we come back to him. You see that cycle over and over again. And why? You'd say, well, pastor, they were in obvious bad times. No, they went from period of blessing to blessing. The dangerous time in the book of Judges is this, it's mentioned twice, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Loved ones, we fare far better to be in a place of great adversity and obvious danger than to be in a time when we have been lulled into thinking that whatever we think is right is right. That was the warning of the prophet who said, woe unto them that call good evil and evil good. It's perhaps one of the most dangerous times that the people of God ever faced. But there's another time of great danger It is a time not only of obvious danger, no, put that aside. It's a time not only of um, wrong standards, put that over to the side, but it's a time when you think you have everything under control, but you're basing everything on the wrong set of principles, the wrong basis. Paul and Peter joined together in telling us the nature of the last days. And this is what it says. The last days, the most dangerous times that mankind will ever face. By the way, Jesus said that unless God shortened the days, mankind would not survive these days as a race. And this is what the prophet or the apostles said. People will cry out peace and safety But sudden destruction comes. Now that wasn't a cry for give us peace, give us safety. No, the the statements are said at juxtaposition. They will cry out, we have arrived with peace and safety. At last we've got a community that is friendly to all and hostile to none. We have attained peace and safety. And the apostle says, it's at that moment that sudden destruction comes. That's why the return of Christ is called, uh, it's described as a thief in the night. It won't occur where people are on guard for it. It will be at a time when people are unexpected um, or, the, or the trouble is unexpected. Um, I'll tell you what makes time so dangerous is that we can um, uh, have answers and conclusions that really sound very scriptural, but stand on something else. Let me explain to you. Um, In Erwin Lutzer's book, uh, When a Nation Forgets God, which is a book uh, I think every child of God living in 2020 ought to read. Um, I I think it is an essential book. And he talks about a Christian who gave testimony in Germany in the early days of the concentration camp. This is what we we can fall into. He said, our church was on the railroad track into Germany and on the path of the railroad track going by our church uh, were several concentration camps that prisoners were taken to. He said, I considered myself a devout Christian and did most people in our church, but we Did something that I look back on now. He said, every week I dream about it. It haunts me. He said, the Jews, whenever they would pass churches like ours, when they began to understand where they were going, they cried out, we're not Christians, was their reasoning. But they cried out to the church because Christians said, We love you and we care for you and we stand for you. We want you to be preserved. We believe in the dignity of all humanity. So, as they would pass by this Lutheran church, they would cry out and ask the Christians to help us. Stop this. Help us. And he said, that the thing that I will never get over as long as I live is the way we dealt with their cries was to sing louder so we could not hear. You see, loved ones, it's a dangerous place, and I please go ahead and go ahead and take your Bible out of your purse again. Um, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the, the church world in general. We, we, need to, we need to understand that when we don't think clearly, we can cover our misthinking with a hymn or a song or with a Bible verse or with a scripture lesson. But what you find is that's when the church is at its most vulnerable. Um, it, it's when our thoughts and reasonings sound like King James English, but, but it's based on something that's not true. Let me give you an example from Scripture. Um, here's, Here's this. Whenever Nicodemus was beginning to turn toward Christ, now Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin, a devout Pharisee, and he would eventually turn to Christ. But while he was in that process of working it out, And and in the early days of his belief where he thought he could remain secret, he tried to appeal to the other scholars in the Sanhedrin, and this is what they said. Now, this was the upper echelon of what we would call the church. He talked about Jesus and Jesus being from Nazareth in Galilee, and this is what they said. We know, they said, Nicodemus, think about what you're saying. We know that no prophet comes from Galilee. Now, there's two ways to look at that. He could have said, well, he doesn't come from Galilee. That's where he was raised, but he was born in Judah. And you love prophets that come from Judah. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But you know what? That wasn't even, it wasn't a matter of misunderstanding. If he had said that, maybe they would have said, oh, oh, okay, we didn't know he's from Bethlehem. Well, maybe he is a prophet. No, do you know the problem? What they didn't know when they said, we know that no prophet comes from Galilee They forgot about Jonah, who was from Galilee. They forgot about Nahum, who was from Galilee. They forgot about Hosea, who was from Galilee. They forgot about Elijah and Elisha, who were from Galilee. And in the name of Scripture, they created a climate that was absolutely false. I wonder if we do that with faith sometime. Well... You say, well, that's just, uh, I, I, don't, I don't want to talk about that. Okay, well, let's, let's do one more. We know that God can't be behind this work of Jesus because why? We know that God doesn't hear sinners. We know God doesn't hear sinners. So the enemy must be working with him to make it look like God is working with him because God doesn't hear sinners But, loved ones, can I give you a surprise? It won't be a surprise to you because I know you. Aren't you glad that God does listen to sinners? (laughs) Boy, I'm glad when I came to Jesus, he listened to sinners. When you came to Jesus, he listened to sinners. Listen to what is written on John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace. Um. Listen to who was himself a slave trafficker, then became a slave himself. Listen to his tombstone. John Newton. There's more than that. John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, who was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith that he had so long labored to destroy. God hears sinners. God hears sinners. And prophets or prophets, whether we accept them or not, they're not disqualified because of their Geography. Now, the thing about it is that these views were not evil necessarily, but they were wrong, even so slightly wrong. Now, as we move into the next era that is before us, I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know if we are going to have a President Biden or if we're going to have a President Trump. And there are people in most churches across America that will not pray your will be done because they know what the will of God is in in their mind. And there are people that will, if President Trump is reelected, they'll say, yes, it's a sign of God's favor. There will be those that say if former Vice President Biden was elected, we knew it all along, God's will is being done. And I've called upon us all to be very humble and to be very gracious to one another and uh, to to remember um, the lessons that we've tried to teach here for the last 26 years. But as we move into whatever the next era will look like, I want to tell you this. God is, among other things, bringing us to a place, whether it's under this administration or that administration, He's bringing us to a place that will require us to truly live out Christianity by faith and not by our own resources. You say, well, I'm, I'm pretty close, Pastor. Um, in 1983, September 1st, there was a Korean airline flight 007 that took off from New York, landed in Anchorage, and then went from Anchorage, was on its way to Seoul. Before they knew what had happened, they were 200 miles into Soviet airspace. The Soviets did not try to communicate with them or warn them. They said that they fired warning shots, but there's no evidence that the warning shots were fired. And flight 007 went down, 269 people dead. And everything they found pointed to they did everything right. They were right on track, right on target. What the engineers have found since then, they say there's two possibilities and both of them are, are human error. The Soviets said they were a spy plane, that was not the case. But what they think happened is there was a document and they said, they said it couldn't happen today. But in 1983, they typed in the wrong heading which may have been as little of, of, as a percentage of one degree. And they typed in a directional thing into the computer that was less than one degree off. And they took off from Anchorage, everything's fine. They went over the Aleutians, everything's fine. They got out over the Pacific, everything's fine. Because you don't pick up a, a tenth of a degree in the early days early moments. But with every minute that passes, they were moving further off course until they got to the point where everybody on board was going to die. Loved ones, I feel very strongly, and I'm not talking about election now. I'm talking about our lives now. I'm talking about our faith now. I think we need to understand that as we move into the next era whatever whatever tomorrow looks like whatever inauguration day in January brings we need to understand that we need to stay before God so there is not an error in our lives even an almost undetectable one so i want to talk to you today about what does it mean to have great faith that's been the hallmark of charismatics and pentecostals for decades I heard Terry Wasden preach a message uh, entitled, What Does It Mean to Have Great Faith? I don't know, probably 25, 30 years ago. And it so rattled my thinking about faith that I wanted to bring those three thoughts that Terry presented, I want to bring them back to you. So Terry, this is your message with a little change. I'm preaching it the way it was meant to be preached. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, the the phone lines are going to start lighting up with corrections here. No, seriously, I wanted to give credit to Terry because he, he um, he's the one that got me started thinking along these lines. And Terry pointed out that we were having great faith seminars in the 80s and how to have great faith. But Terry pointed out that there were only two times in scripture that someone was said to have great faith. So I wanted to go back after Terry took us there and really kind of examined what makes faith great. You say, well, pastor, faith is when you just don't have any doubts. Can I, can I tell you something? The moment of my life, and I, and I, and I say this after nearly 40 years, um, after, after 37 years to be precise, the moment in my life where I had what I honestly still believe 37 years later I had what was the most pristine, pure, strongest faith to believe for something that I have ever had before then or since then. I believe, in other words, from my perspective, my faith, as far as absolutely no doubts at the pinnacle of purity, I think it reached a point uh, about uh, uh, 37 years ago. And I had no doubts whatsoever. But do you know what God's answer to my faith was? No. You say, Well, He had to. You got all your ducks in a row, you got everything on the measurement right. I had no doubts. And that's why I went into a six month funk trying to figure out what went wrong. When God said no, see, we were told we'd never have children, and so I began to pursue the Lord. I went to faith seminars. We're going to have a baby. We're going to have, you know, this infertility is not going to take its toll in our life. And I got to the point where I said, it, we, "Ramona's pregnant, and doesn't even know it." I really, I really believe that. But God said no. You say, "Well, why would He do that?" There must have been something wrong with your faith. I really don't think so. Except this. God spoke to me when I was holding my first child in my arms, whom we adopted. He said, if I had said yes to that prayer, then I'd have to say no to this one. No, I, that's where faith becomes trust. Lord, I trust you. Do you trust him enough if he says no? When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed and in terrible suffering. This was not a Jew coming to him, not the chosen people. It was a Roman. It was a Gentile and not only a Gentile, but an enemy Gentile that was occupying the land. Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. And it wasn't that the man believed Jesus could do anything. He understood that Jesus had authority. We're going to talk about that authority in a moment. The second time that that phrase is used is Matthew 15. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Now here's a woman that is also not a Jew. Now she's not part of an occupying army, but she's the descendant of people who were supposed to have been wiped out and not allowed to exist. Have mercy on me, my daughter suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word. His disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now Jesus has a reason for everything he does. Jesus was not uninterested in this woman, but I will guarantee you when God's trying to get you to a bigger place, you'll think he doesn't care. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me. And Jesus following that party line says, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, but even dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And in the revised Chitty version, there's one extra verse between 27 and 28, when she said, even dogs eat crumbs that fall from their master's table," It says that Jesus looked to heaven and went, yes. (laughs) She gets it. Now that's not in most translations. (laughs) Jesus answered and said, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Now I'm going to have to hurry through here. And boy, thank you guys so much for praying for the persecuted church. That was time well spent. And I encourage you to keep following uh, the voice of the martyrs and other organizations. Um, let's, let's give a, a, just a few, maybe five minutes of introduction to understand faith. Faith is common and foundational, but it is also something that can have increased capacity and usefulness. In other words, we can't even come to Jesus without faith but it is something that can grow. It's something, I mean, that's foundational. Everybody's given a measure of faith. You have to have a measure of faith to come to Jesus, but your trust in him can grow with the passing of time. Like one man who said one time, when troubles come, he said, I've walked with Jesus so long and he's been so good to me. He said, it's gotten to the point where I can't tell if trouble is from the devil or the Lord because he redeems it all, okay? Now we know. Hear me, loved ones. We know there are at least three types of faith. There's dynamic faith. There's demonic faith, and there's dead faith. Uh, the the dynamic faith is what we're after. Uh, this type of faith is life giving, and hopefully, it will be ever increasing. Um, he, here is a noble goal. Uh, if if. You know, I've said, this is what I want on my tombstone if I ever die, which I hope I never do. I'm I'm counting on the return of the Lord. But if I have to die, this is what I want on my tombstone. He was a good man, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. It was a noble aspiration of those that were chosen to serve in positions of leadership in the church. A good man, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. It was a requirement for church leaders, whether you were called to preach, or you were called to be an elder, or you were called to serve as a deacon, um, uh, or or to serve in a special role. Faith was a requirement for church leaders. They were to be full of faith. Um, And this is based on trust and belief in Christ, because we know from Ephesians, hear me loved ones, for by grace have you been saved through faith, through faith, trust. Now again, there's, there's faith for healing, there's faith for the miraculous. I, I know there are different types of faith, but the faith that is in its purest form is simply a trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, now there's a spiritual gift known as faith, you know, like there's a gift of tongues and interpretation of tongues, the gift of discerning of spirits. There's also a gift of faith now, but there's, and and that's what we want, but there's also demonic faith. Um, In other words, there are a lot of people that believe the right things and they think that's adequate, but all it is, is just intellectual correctness. James put it this way, you believe that there is one God for In other words, to everybody in American culture, I would say this that says, oh yeah, I believe there's God. Uh, I might be like Morgan Freeman who says God's in all of us, or I might be like uh, um, Oprah Winfrey that says, yes, there's a God, but there's not just one way, whoever you perceive God to be, that can be your God and on and on and on. And James would say this, you, you believe there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. King James says, tremble. This type of faith, you know, I, I hear a lot of people describe themselves as people of faith, but uh, I think what that means is they believe there's some higher power. They might even attend a church or, or a seminar or whatever it is, but this type of faith is not Bible faith, it's not dynamic faith. It is intellectually correct, yes there's a god, but it's a but it's merely a reluctant acknowledgement of god and at its best this kind of demonic faith only produces fear. Then there's dead faith. This is faith that is never more than intellectual or maybe emotional or maybe willful. But all three of those must be put in place. Faith touches your intellect, Faith touches your emotion, and faith causes you to do something. Um, D.L. Moody used to put it this way. He said, if a man is on a train going the wrong direction, he says he boards with a ticket going from Chicago to New York, but he realizes that he's left Chicago, and now he's in Iowa, and he realizes the, plane, uh, the train is headed for San Francisco. He says the first part of his conversion is intellectual." He says, I have to understand I'm going the wrong way. And Moody said, there's a lot of people that understand they're going the wrong way, but that's as far as their faith goes. He says, after you intellectually understand you're on the wrong train, he says, emotion, some people will respond more than other people. Some people will just say, oh my goodness, I'm going the wrong way. I've got to do something. Others will say, oh God. You know. emotions all over the place, but there's got to be some kind of emotion where you understand I'm going the wrong way. And if I don't get off this train, I'm never going to reach my destination. So that's the third part of faith will or action. I'm going the wrong way. I'll never reach my destination unless I get on another train. So they stop in Iowa at the next train station and they get on board another train going in the other direction. Um, But dead faith can believe the right thing. Dead faith can fear the right thing. Dead faith can even try to do the right stuff, but it has to be on all levels or it's just dead faith. Now, like most spiritual traits, this dynamic type of faith can increase and produce more fruit. There are measures of faith, the, the, the base measure of faith is being able to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know if the measure of faith, like the gift of faith, is something that God gives to us in, our, in His sovereignty, or if it's something that we can develop, we, or is it both? We just don't fully understand. Our perception of great faith may be flawed. <laughs> when Jesus said, oh, ye of little faith, you know who He just said that to? A man that had just walked on water I mean, a man that just walked on water. (laughs) I mean, I would have given him great credit for that. Uh, Ted Williams, one time in a baseball game against uh, the Baltimore Orioles, Ted Williams hit for a single, a triple, and a home run. A single, a triple, and a home run. And when they changed pitchers, the new pitcher said, has he got any weaknesses? And the pitcher looked at him like, you idiot. Yeah, he can't hit doubles. No, I would have said, Peter. Good man, that you only took six steps, but that's six more than I've ever taken. But Jesus understood that what we get enamored with. That's why we make. That's why we become groupies, and we put and we put speakers and and gifted people on pedestals and make gods out of them. And then we we act so disappointed when they fall. When it, but we need to realize that the only thing pedestals are good for uh, is to help people fall off of. So the best way for us to understand this concept is to go to the authority, go to Jesus, who is the creator, sustainer, and perfecter of our faith. In the gospels, as I said, he cited two people for having great faith, the Roman centurion, the Gentile woman. They have totally different circumstances, but they exhibit three great similarities. Let me give you what these three great similarities are just as quickly as I can. Okay. Here's, here's number one. Great faith understands the nature of Christ's authority. See, this is my complaint and I am Pentecostal, but this is my complaint to a lot of Pentecostals, a lot of groups that believe in healing. We have bastardized faith and made it about confession and getting a miracle. Now we need faith and we ought to have faith and God is a miracle worker, but But I grew up in a time when if you were Pentecostal and especially the new charismatics, your faith was measured by one thing. Am I living fat and happy and do I get everything I want? Now that works during a Reagan era economic upturn in a nation like America. But I want to tell you that the voice of the martyrs reminds us that This name it and claim it, this prosperity gospel is not proclaimed in other nations. The centurion spoke of understanding the chain of command. The woman spoke of Jesus as the son of David, recognizing him as a king. The issue that they both understood is that Jesus does what he does. You guys still with me? How about Brown Chapel? Let me hear loud enough for me to hear. All right. Good. Proud of you. The issue is authority is authority. The, the woman said, I know who you are. You, you don't wear the crown yet, but you are the King of Israel and whatever the King says goes, you are favored by God just as David was favored. The centurion said, I recognize a man. He didn't say, I recognize a man who has authority. Now he acknowledged that. He says, you have authority. But he said, I understand that people who have authority live under authority. You can't understand authority unless you live under authority. You say, well, Jesus had authority. He could get whatever he asked for. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear. Jesus never asked or prayed for anything except what the Father showed him. You say, well, if I could just have the gift of healing, I'd go empty the hospital. And that's exactly why you don't have the gift of healing. You think you understand every dynamic. You think you understand every, every situation. And Jesus said, as a man, I submit myself to the Father. And the only reason I have authority is because Father has authority and I am under it. When I'd just been here for a couple of years, we were praying through, it just looked like we were just stuck. We were just stuck. And we had been praying for several weeks. We called special prayer meetings, the, the prayer team. And um, I remember Pastor Glenn, I don't remember who else, if, if anybody else is here now, was here then. And we prayed and we prayed. And we had set a deadline. You know, when all else fails, tell the Lord you're giving him a deadline and call it faith. <laughs> You know, call it faith. We're going to, and I think we said, we're going to, we're going to pray uh, 30 more days. And, and Lord, is, we're doing our part. It's up to you to, to, to do your part. Well, we prayed and we just did not have the answer. We did not have the answer because the answer involved, this is what you need to do. And we didn't know what we need to do. And I came to the clock. I remember the last day of our deadline. I came to the time and on my watch, Okay, Lord, you've had your 30 days. I mean, I wasn't arrogant. I just said, Lord, I've done everything I know to do. I mean, I was really broken. I said, I've done everything I know to do, but you haven't told me what to do. And I just don't know what to pray. And I said, Lord, I'm just going to go home. I don't know what to do. We'll regroup. Maybe next year we'll know what to do. And I reached and grabbed my keys off of my desk. And when I grabbed my keys, I'd written off the prayer. I told the Lord I was going home. I grabbed my keys and the Lord spoke to me. I will give you the keys to this situation, but you must remember they are my keys and only I have the authority to give them to you. And I said, Lord, forgive me. I've been trying to get the keys. I've been trying to act in authority and you're the only one that has authority. And do you know what? We had been praying for, I think like 45 days, maybe a little bit longer. And when I said, Lord, forgive me, he gave me three steps that were needed to, to take care of the problem. Gave it to me in less than 20 seconds. But God says, it's not my problem speaking to you. It's not my problem anointing you. The problem is you've got to understand all authority comes from me. Read the book of Revelation. John said there was a seven-sealed scroll and nobody could open it. I couldn't open it. The angels couldn't open it. Nobody could open it. And I began to weep. And this is what the angel says. Weep not, John. Don't cry. For behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has prevailed. Or he has authority. And he is able to open this. Loved ones, I want to tell you, there are millions of people that love Jesus and are going to heaven, but they've never understood that the authority belongs to him. I listened to a guy the other day, said, yep, the Lord is going to come back and he's going to have his kingdom, but he's given it to us to decide what the kingdom looks like. And I thought, you poor, poor, sad little man. I said, that- I tell you what, we've got to get under authority. That's number one, get under authority. I believe what God is doing, the awe of God is being restored to those with eyes to see. Now, we haven't seen this in the last six, seven, eight months, but we're about to see it as the church lines up with him, and it's not going to be because of an election. It may be in spite of an election, but God has a separate agenda for his church And we've got to understand he has the authority. The awe of God is being restored to those with eyes to see. He's reclaiming the glory of his house. This is what he's going to do. He's restoring our commitment to his word. He's building a true community of believers. He's giving new discernment as we see the difference between the wheat and the tares. He's about to pour out his spirit to bring restoration and reformation. The harvest is going to occur and in his people that will humble themselves he's building an unshakable faith and purity in the lives of Christians. I'm going I'm to leave this vision I had about battling siblings and and doubting children. We'll talk about that another time. Let's go to the second dynamic. Great faith, okay, it not only recognizes the authority of Jesus and bows to it, but number two, great faith is willing to cover new ground. The lady said, I know Jesus that conventional wisdom and the religious system that Israel lives under says that I'm not worthy that you even take the time of day, but I know something about you. I've seen something about you. I've heard something about you. And that is that not only are you a God of justice and not only are you a God that demands holiness, you are a God of mercy The centurion said, I know that I have no reason to ask you to come into my house, but I know there's a higher law at work and it's the law of love and that operates from the throne of God. And you have the ability to do what father does. And father is a God of mercy. You know, if you've ever been to the circus, I think circus is pretty well shut down. I'm talking about the big three ring circus. But I tell you what, I remember going as a kid, and I'll tell you, hands down, there was no greater moment than when the trapeze artist would start swinging and your tension would build up. I mean, this was bigger than the lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, it was just bigger. (laughs) And you say, well, what were they doing? They were just swinging. Yeah, and all of us were amazed that they were swinging, but everybody without meaning to held our breath. When? When they let go of the bar. Because when they let go of the bar, they were in no man's land till they grabbed the other bar. That's a good way to describe faith sometimes. I mean, some of us are, some of us have really learned to swing on our bar, but we never let go of the bar. Lord, I trust you. You are the Lord who blesses my finances as long as I make 5,000 a week and have my retirement fund in place and our house is paid off. Yes, Lord, we trust you. For what? You got to let go of the bar. The children of Israel were privileged to know God's work, but Moses was privileged to know God himself. I'm going to tell you, I had a little card when Ramona and I first got married. I'll tell you what, I've been married to that woman 41 years. And um, she she is by far the best gift God's ever given me apart from salvation. Children and grandchildren are right there at the edge close, but (laughs) she holds number one when we got married. And I think pastor Tommy in his wisdom gave me this. I mean, he, he was, uh, I don't know if you guys know pastor Tommy and I go back into my early twenties. That's how long we've worked together. And when I got married um, at 24, he gave me, or or pointed it out anyway, I ended up with a card called All About Ramona. He said, Pay attention to this, you'll have a long and prosperous marriage. Well, it had her name, had her birth date, important dates, important people, her favorite color, the size of everything that she would wear from shoes to gloves to dresses and everything. You know, I, I had everything at my disposal all about Ramona. And I said, as long as I've got this, I am, I am a world-class husband. (laughs) But you know what? I wish I'd kept the card. I ended up throwing it away, but I wish I'd kept it because I remember the day when I learned I can know everything about Ramona, but not know what she wants. I got her several things that the card says, yes, this is it. But she, I mean, she was always gracious, but she didn't want it. You know, and that takes the, the romantic moment out of giving a gift when you've just given something they don't want, you know. But so, so I began to try another path and I haven't always done as well with it, but I began to realize that to know my wife, I can't delegate it to a card, even front and back, even with notes in the margin. Okay, I need to just give her my heart and let her give me her heart. That's the way that faith is that God's leading some of you into. Some of you have learned formulas. You've got memory verses, which I believe in formulas. I believe in memory verses, but God wants to take you to a place where it's you and him, where it's just you and him. Uh, Here's the last thing and we've got to stop. I don't, but you do. Um, Great faith grows out of deep humility and great faith doesn't make you proud. See, uh, one man that's still around said, if Paul had understood the power of confession, like I have, he would have never had his thorn in the flesh. I, I, I don't know, but I would imagine that brother regrets saying that, you know, now, as he's gotten to know the Lord better. Great faith doesn't make you strong. I remember, you know, one of the televangelists that fell Back in the, in the late 80s, uh, I heard him say something probably 15 years before that. Somebody said, Brother so-and-so, how can I pray for you? He said, Ma'am, he said, I've got a strong prayer life. I don't need prayer for me. I need prayer to raise this money. And even as a teenager, when I heard him say that, I knew that it was a formula for disaster. And it was. He fell and fell hard. Um, and it, it's like this. Muhammad Ali, I used to love Muhammad Ali. Well, I still love him, but I mean, he's not around anymore. But Muhammad Ali got on a plane leaving Louisville. And, uh, you know, here's the heavyweight champion of the world. And he's sitting there in the plane in first class, a little stewardess that was said to have weighed probably less than 90 pounds came up and said... uh, uh, in fact, I think he was Cassius Clay at that time. It was before he changed his name. She said, Mr. Clay, you're going to have to buckle up. And he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. She reached down and grabbed the seatbelt and said, Superman don't need no plane either. <laughs> so, <laughs> And the heavyweight champion of the world thought about it and buckled up. So. If you and I walk in great faith, let me tell you something, loved ones, it will always, sooner or later, it will invariably include the offense of your mind. You can never, you can never intellectually grasp faith. It's not the opposite of intellect. It just transcends intellect. Somebody has said that reason is the opposite of faith. No, somebody has said that science is the opposite of faith. No, medicine's the opposite of faith. No, faith has no opposite. It just transcends everything. And we've got to understand that if you and I are really where we ought to be, great faith will result in us walking in humility. Um, This is the one I esteem, God said through Isaiah. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. James said, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may lift you up in due time. I want to give you three Christian life lessons and we're done. Number one, as we move into this next phase, remember this has nothing to do with election unless there's some application God's trying to make to your heart. This is about the normal Christian life as we move into the days ahead. God's priority is not to establish normalcy. See, he could have done that right away, but he also knew that if he let everything go back to normal, that means we would go back to normal. He is working on the supernatural, then the natural will fall into place. Don't get me wrong. There are some things I want to come back, but I don't ever want to think the way I thought before last March. Number two, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When I was in elementary school, and they might've been bigger, in my mind they were a lot bigger. This is supposed to be the same thing. We were introduced to magnetism and we had a magnetic workstation in the library. And we could do all kinds of experiments and see what would stick to the magnets and what wouldn't. And I remember I, I had my time in the library at the magnet station and the librarian and teacher came up to me and they said, Stevie, that's how long ago it was. Stevie, you have spent all your time trying to make these ends of the magnet go together. Now, you know, opposite ends, you can, you know, they attract. But when you turn it over, they, they, they'll fight you. And in fact, she said, I watched you, you know, do this, hold it in the place. And the minute you let up, they flew apart again. And they said, you spent your whole time, instead of doing these neat experiments, you spent your whole time trying to figure out why you couldn't get them to to stay together. You wasted your time. And I wasn't convinced because I thought there was some nefarious something at work here. And um, this is what my teacher said before you were not allowed to say this. She said, that's God's law of magnetism. And no matter how hard you try, you can't undo that. You've got to line it up the way God ordained. Well, I was mad because I I wanted it to be done my way. And I began to understand that there are some things that just, Aren't gonna come together. They're just not. And even if I force them, the minute I let go, they fall apart. You see, this is the way some of you are trying to live by faith. You are trying to make God make likes attract instead of opposites attracting. And, And you have even been able to get it in the right spot. As long as you can stay awake and hold it there. You've gone to faith clinics saying there's got to be a way. Oh, in Jesus name, I speak in tongues here. There's got to be a way I can make it come. And it never will. It never will. And loved ones, it's because we've understood how some people used faith instead of understanding what faith is. Faith is I trust him. I trust him. So God, that's the second lesson. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Uh, it, it, you can be proud and arrogant and you can, you can even accomplish great things. But as soon as the pressure's off, you're not gonna match up. Now you say, well, that's, that's kind of disheartening. I, I think if I try long enough, I can make it. Well, that's the third and final Christian life lesson. God can always outweigh us. He can always outweigh us. He can always keep us where we are until we learn that we come to Him on His terms, not ours. Now I hope you've learned something about faith today. We have to dismiss because that smell that you're smelling there, coming out of the kitchen, it's your turkey burning for (laughs) for your uh, celebration of Time Change Sunday. I need to let you go. But if you are here, if you're in Brown Chapel, if you're watching online. If there's a chance that you realize, you know, Pastor, I realize that, you know, I haven't had anything but demonic faith, or at best, dead faith. But I want dynamic faith. I want the faith that works with grace to give me eternal life. And we want to do two things here today and in Brown Chapel. We want to pray with you if you want to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, become a Christian. Or if you have a need, you know you're His, but you have a need that you need prayer for, we want to pray for you. Now, if you're at home, we're not able to be with you right now, but there are people, that phone number that will be on the screen, people will be waiting for you to call and they can lead you to Jesus or they can pray with you over your special need. Uh, This is such an important day. we've, we've, We've spent little more time because we wanted to pray for the persecuted church. And I, I want to tell you, um, I suspect, this isn't a thus saith the Lord, but I suspect uh, about half America is going to be thrilled with election results and about half are going to be angry. And, and loved ones, I don't want you to be distracted by trying I don't want you to be distracted. Justin, don't let anybody steal my magnets. (laughs) But this is a time right now, right now, whoever you're for, this is a time right now that we begin to walk in great faith. God is in charge. Lord, thank you for the beauty of our gathering today. Thank you for this good crowd that's here. And thank you for our loved ones that are watching at home. I pray in Jesus' name that it will be said of us that we have great faith. Great faith because we believe and live under authority. Great faith because we're willing for you to work in a way we've never seen you work in before. Father, and help us to have great faith because we're willing to just say, Lord, I am yours. I am yours. Everything that I have, is yours. Um, and, and I humble myself and I say like John the Baptist, I must decrease so you can increase. Bless our friends who call in for prayer. Bless folks that are coming to the altar now in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for listening online.